Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be chatting to the amazing Ebony from Vets Stego Diversify about her amazing career, but also the amazing opportunities that the veterinary passport gives to us all. And she talks about all of that in a flamingo onesie. Who knew? In our clinical segment this week, we are going to be chatting about IMHA and some of the tips and tricks as far as treating these very challenging conditions. I want to say a massive thank you to IDEX for their support uh, of our anemia course and, uh, and our podcast. They have been an absolute joy to work with and we're very, very grateful uh, for their support. So Ebony, thanks for, for joining us. I feel um, it's a funny moment for us here at the podcast because you do you do pop up a little bit in conversation i don't i don't know i don't know if that's something you're aware of um always in a very good way uh, <laughs> always in a good way so um so we could we'll maybe delve into that a little bit but i think um just uh, to start with as always i think it'd be really nice for you just to um introduce yourself a little bit um if that's okay and just um just to explain the I suppose, to the listeners a, a bit about your uh, veterinary journey. Yeah, very happy to do so, Scott. Although it's so weird being on the other side. Like, I just want, I just want to interview you. Don't oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe another time. I like shy and retire when I've got to talk about myself. Um, yeah, so thank you for having me. Uh, I absolutely love what you're doing with this podcast and with the community that you're building. And, and actually, that's a great place to start in terms of what I do, because... Um, yeah, I'm, um, I suppose what I spend a lot of my time doing is helping craft communities that count. So um, I kind of swapped ponies for people um, a few years back. Uh, I'm a horse vet, I trade, and I love clinical work, and I love all the animals. Um, but as I progressed in my career, I just realised that it was it was people um, that I was more attuned in with, and, and that actually I could help more um, with. Um, so kind of ended up moving into the educational uh, community and digital space, thankfully, before the pandemic, um, because it meant that actually I was ripe and ready with skills to support people in that virtual world when when the world came crumbling down. So I spend about a third of my time uh, working with veterinary and non-veterinary uh, communities, charities and organisations to help them build their online communities. Uh, I do about a third of my time helping other people run their events, um, again, within the vet space and, and not, not in the vet space. And then about a third of my time working on Vet Stego Diversify, uh, a community that I founded four years ago to help provide career inspiration with the incredible veterinary passport uh, that we all have. And then every now and again, I still go out and locum as an equine vet. So that's kind of how I split my time at the moment. Okay, so and 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 then um, also do some quite cool traveling stuff. I think um, you're just back from some cool trip. We can maybe talk about that in a minute as well. So, um, so I I wonder one of the things that I think people will be most interested in is the fact that you know we talk about vet stay go diversify and actually it's quite an well, you know as far as in the community it's an established um concept and 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 I think a lot of people are very aware of it in in the veterinary space. I would just be interested to know wh wh where where's that moment where you're sitting in the shower on the toilet I don't know having a drink what where do you just be like all oh, right so I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna call it this and it's gonna turn into this 
Oh, yeah. Is there a moment or? There is, yeah. There did... were... Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, there were, there, were, there were moments, but yes. Um, at the time I was finishing up, I think, was I finishing up? I was finishing up my PhD, I believe, at the time, or I was um, just crossing over from my PhD into working for an international development um, organisation. Um, and I'd been surrounded by a lot of medics and a lot of biologists and engineers. And, and I realised that we were not we were not unique in our concerns about our profession. Um, by that, I mean, it's quite common for all the professions to have moments of feeling lost, feeling stuck, thinking you're not good enough, um, wondering what to do next, uh, perhaps a mismatch of expectation from when you were little and you wanted to be that engineer or that doctor, and then mm -hmm. you know, waking up at 35 and going, is this it, right? Mm -hmm. So actually, I'd been for a few events called um, Medics Stay Go Diversify when I was at Imperial College uh, London in the, in the medical team there. And so I was like, oh, this is this this resonates um, because I would got off the phone to too many of my friends. So I'm 12 years out now um, and I, I was just so upset getting off the phone to so many of my dear, dear friends who were so lost and stuck. And no matter what I said, no matter what advice I gave, uh, no matter me sharing my story, it didn't resonate. Like they needed to find and see their own path. Uh, I'm lucky in that I had a, a life before veterinary. So I, I kind of aware of the multitude of things one can do. Um, and I was like, look, we need to find a place where people can talk about this. And I assumed there'd be something out there for veterinary. So I looked for it and I was like, there isn't anything. Mm. Um, so I got off the phone with a very good friend uh, who unfortunately is not with us anymore. So she was a huge, a huge inspiration for, for the group, Polly. And I got off the phone and I just said, right, I've got to start something. And I just mm. started this Facebook group. Um, and yeah, and the rest is history. And I wanted to help a handful of friends. And I was sitting mm. there, I probably had a couple, a couple of red wines at that point. Yes. I was in a flamingo onesie. <laughs> yes. And I just went, I just went, <laughs> I think all the best ideas actually come after um, a glass of red wine when you are in a flamingo onesie and I've definitely <laughs> been in that situation before um so I love that but so just a couple of things to pick up on there actually which are are really interesting I think even just saying that those words you know we're not the only ones I really do think that that's quite important actually because I think sometimes it feels like we are and it's like you you exactly and i think but but for people to hear that i think is actually really it doesn't you know it doesn't make it better or worse it just is i think slightly soothing to hear that it's not maybe just us that are kind of you know suffering from that and i think the thing is that but it it, it does come along with this kind of i think this kind of slight shame for me initially to be like oh, so this is maybe not what i thought it was going to be like and what if I don't really want to do this? And 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 I definitely felt that. And I think what, you know, and, and certainly a lot of the people I've spoken to about this, what you're giving people is just a safe space to be like, oh no, but it's okay. And I think that's, if you do, for me personally, if you did nothing else, like that would be enough, right? Just a facilitating people being allowed to do a slightly different thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, Absolutely. And, and I think that it, it and I, I don't want to oversimplify what you're doing at all, but actually at the core of it, that's really the most, for me personally, the most important part 
as far as how you know your organization has kind of helped me I, I think that's one of the key things for me absolutely so you talked a little bit about you talked a little bit about your story I think I don't know whether you would mind sharing just a little bit more about that as far as were there kind of key things in your own journey that were kind of um, real kind of triggers for um, making some changes and doing something that was slightly different? Yeah, I'll come back to your point, actually, just briefly on you said, oh, I don't want to simplify what you're doing. But that is the whole point. Like, surely it being simple is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, like, like, yeah. Surely, surely that's it. Like, yeah. for me, the whole point of VSGD is I want to showcase the humans behind the veterinary profession and the stories and the ups and downs and the slip ups and the severe failures, as well as all the wonderful celebrations and and just that whole squiggly career because long gone are the days of a career ladder in my opinion it's embracing this big squiggly old mess and the dead ends are just as important as those kind of step ups if that's what you know people want to view it as so yeah I just want to say actually no it it's I suppose it's providing a, a simple space that embraces the chaotic mess that is life <laughs> but you know it's so but even that I, I don't know if you've <laughs> I love the way you just described that. I don't know if that's something you've thought a lot on, but that was just a perfect kind of this squiggly mess, this squiggly mess rather than this, you know, this but this very kind of hierarchical kind of ladder structure that we almost like, and I definitely have felt that where, it, you know, I so what's the next thing? Well, you have to be this thing and then this thing and then this thing. But, and, and it was it was a moment of complete clarity for me where I was like, Oh no, but I don't really have to do that if I don't want to. Like, but you honestly made to feel like that. I think by the profession around you sometimes. Um, so it, it, I think squiggly mess is good too. I'm I might quote you on that <laughs> um, in the future. <laughs> well, it's actually taken. We're I'm really lucky. VSD are incredibly lucky. We got selected this year to be part of the first ever squiggly career advocate program, which are run by the incredible Sarah and Helen from Amazing If. So for the listeners here, it's one of the best podcasts mm. out there when it comes to careers. The squiggly career, the book, the squiggly careers is amazing, um, and that lovely team. We're we're really lucky. So VSD is going to be putting out some incredible resources um, alongside um, co-creation with with the squiggly careers team and the other nine. 29 advocates that span from army to um, job sharing platforms to government to mental health charities as a hundred individuals that do things that like I do uh, in VSDD but spans across loads of other places so we're going to be doing lots of cross learning so the squiggly careers is very much I've stolen it from them so I want to just be very clear about All right, okay. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna, their, I'm gonna it's definitely it their thing but I want to we've been selected to help share that message to be like look let's embrace this mess um because it's brilliant the mess can be can be amazing yeah so yeah so just so yeah coming back then to your own sort of journey I don't know if there was just a couple of things there that maybe and again you know from the point of view of kind of help I suppose always helping other people that are listening just maybe some some experiences of your own that have kind of really um shaped you know the direction that you've kind of gone off in I think my first job was actually really important for that I think you graduate and you go I want to use all the information I have and all the knowledge and you know you and it's actually really hard to be I think you know being a GP in a mixed practice is possibly one of the hardest jobs you can do so kudos to all of you lot I managed about nine months and I was like I've just got to do horses <laughs> like, I just horses are nice and easy you know small dose, medium dose, big dose. There's only about 10 drugs you can give it. 
it's just makes life easier. Uh, so again, coming back to simplicity theme here, um, you know, uh, and I realized that I, um, I needed to be outside um, and uh, I needed time and I didn't get the time to build with clients and with my patients in that small animal consult room. Now I could do the job and I still occasionally do do small animal consulting, but um, I realized my, that's not where my strengths were. So again, it was just being aware of like what turns you on and what turns you off, but ensuring you've tried it enough to know, oh yeah, definitely this is, I'm better suited outside having more time with my clients and, and with my, with my patients. So I think that, that kind of honing down quite early on, I think was important, but I was always very aware to say to myself, it's not, um, it's a road I can go back from. So if I, if I ever wanted to go back and do some animal, even now after 12 years, I know I could do it. So I think that I think is really important. Having that first job where, you know, your team, like I'd done my EMS there. I felt I could be really honest. They supported that next journey. They knew they were losing me. I went and got an internship back at Liverpool in the equine department, but they couldn't have been more supportive. And actually that first job, I've gone back to and worked for them again and again and again. So a lesson there for me is about, um, yeah, about really trusting that team, but also trusting yourself about what turns you on and what turns you off. Um, and thinking some of the things that turn you on aren't the clinical parts. It's as important to notice being outside was really important. You know, those drives between calls gave me that space to reflect, ask questions. You know, I needed a bit more time. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't quick, quick, I wasn't a quick thinker. And that's really important is again, 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 just, just getting rid of any sort of, um, I keep coming back to this word shame, but I, I definitely have felt that, but getting rid of any sort of shame that, that the, 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 the non-clinical parts are okay too. And, and, and I think just, just again, mm-hmm. allowing yourself and, 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 and making decisions that are, are going to best serve you and suit you in the best possible way and I think that that in itself is really kind of powerful mm-hmm. so then when I suppose then coming you know starting starting this Facebook group you know and I'm sure at the time you were like I mean this might be okay so you start this Facebook group um Vets Take Go Diversify and then I'm sure you must have been like oh no wait this has become something bigger uh, than I expected or maybe maybe that's what you always planned but was there were you like all oh, right <laughs> so this is quite a thing now right yeah well it, I suppose <laughs> it, this comes back to my whole I just shared you know that first job and that move there but like maybe it's a good thing I've never been a planner Scott like I just follow my nose and I suppose it's following the nose or you can say it's trusting your gut or it's being forever curious like every job I've ever done I have never planned to do, you know? So I went after that first job, I just, I went, I was like obsessed with colic. So I was just like, I just want to go and hang out with ponies that have colic. So where's the best place to do that? <laughs> Liverpool, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then I'm like- I'm sure those poor ponies were not having the same feeling. No, of course not. But what, you know, <laughs> I, I just wanted to learn more. And I just found like the yeah. way that, you know, the anatomy worked just like fascinating. and even though we were doing an internship with like ridiculously long hours, it's probably the happiest I've ever been clinically. You know, so when people talk about like work-life balance or hours or like, it's not as simple as like writing down this prescriptive amount. Like if you are in it and you are like loving it, like I would have happily done a one-on-one rotor there. Like that's how much I loved it, you know? And then you follow your notes to the next thing. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do some research now and do a PhD. And then realize that that was awful. Like I was... (laughs) the hardest part of my life by, by, a, by a country mile. And I had so many scientific and personal 
horrendous lessons in in that journey um but all of these experiences prepped me I guess for like yeah for kind of sharing for sharing all those stories like be them good or good or bad and with VSGD um no I just wanted to help a handful of friends like I said and it, it did that um and it spiraled out of control and I'm only now five years on kind of going oh okay I think you need I think you're I think you owe it to do something with it you know you owe it to almost maybe pass it on like I feel like I'm a bit I feel like actually I've reached a bottleneck with it and perhaps I'm holding it back um so I'm now looking going right how can I collaborate what other people need to come in how can I increase the diversity of voices that that shout from the rooftops um who else needs to be involved where can I step back who else can step up um but again like I'm just following my nose like I have you know quite frankly no idea but we'll see (laughs) the one thing I'll take away from today is the fact that you just stood there and said, look, I did this PhD and actually it was terrible for me. And I think that's the thing. Like, I think, you know, it's, that's, and that great. So I realized that. And then, so I didn't continue to do research for the rest of my life. Right. So there we've learned that very valuable lesson and actually research, you know, I I, I know, you know, Polly uh, Comston, who's a good friend of mine as well. And, you know, complete opposite. She's an epidemiologist. I couldn't imagine anything worse. And I, no. and I would say it to her face, it's not no. like I'm not being disrespectful, but she is really no. good at that. And she knows, and, and, but that's great because then we're all different and we all do exactly. exactly. You know. And I just realized I, what I, I, so the thing about veterinary professionals and it's to our detriment, we can be good at a lot of stuff. Doesn't mean we enjoy it. So you've got to find what you're good at that you enjoy that someone will pay you for (laughs) like i am good i can do a spreadsheet i can do the stats i can work on my own i can do i enjoy it no my phd was the most lonely imposter syndrome um weird five years of my life there was joy in there as well don't get me wrong found amazing friends I mean working at Imperial is like you know the biggest gold star ever on a CV but um some of the culture in in the places that we were working is was it was hard and difficult and 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 that level of detail that I needed to give a project I'm a big picture person I can I that's where I am best sitting big picture and like strategy going down and getting into the weeds of things for four years oh nearly broke me and um, yeah, you know, and, uh, and it's where I experienced my first breakdown. And, and before then, I used to say that depressed people had too much time on their hands. I mean, actually, that's actually what I used to think. You know? So there was a shift, uh, both in my knowledge of myself um, in terms of my career, but also knowledge of myself as a person and, and the human race at large. And actually, uh, it doesn't, you know, we can, yeah, it doesn't take much to, to throw someone onto the other side and, uh and that PhD, like I say, has always been more of a personal lesson than a, than a professional one. I'm very grateful for it. I Would I do it again? Probably. Otherwise, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, but it was the hardest four years, five years of my life by a mile, like in terms of stuff that happened to me personally as well in that time with family health and other bits and bobs. So, yeah, it's not all like it looks great. When you look at just my CV, you think, oh, amazing, impressive PhD from Department of Surgery and Cancer for Imperial College London. But behind that, whew, <laughs> Isn't that but but isn't that incredible? Well, not inc- incredible because actually there you go. I mean, it's but it's it's so much comes down to that again, and I've said this many times about you know the more qualified I've become, the potentially the more unhappy I have become in my job. Like so, and and you know 
again on paper my qualifications look very shiny but it doesn't necessarily translate into anything other than a qualification of a paper i mean obviously there's knowledge there and you will have learned a lot through your phd but equally there you go like it's it just shows you know it's not there and there's a lot more going on beneath the surface with all of us than any of us would ever really fully uh, sort of understand you know, and i and wish I wish we spent as much time and effort on our letters after our name as we did actually getting to know ourselves. Hmm. Like if I'd spent four years dedicating, actually learning about myself, what turns me on, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, how I like to work, how I like to give and receive feedback, you know, what, what, what validates me, all those things, you know, then I, you wouldn't be searching for this external validation, which I think I was doing, just going, I'm not worthy of having a vet degree or I'm not worthy of being a vet without all these letters after my name. Like I genuinely thought I wasn't worthy unless I did all these extra things, you know, internships, yeah. I was going to go into residency, PhDs, certificates, you name it. Um, and like you say, you get something from it. Sure, you get skills, you, you probably get a degree of competence and some degree of confidence, but, um, but it doesn't, you know, if you don't know yourself. No. So do, do you think, do you think you know yourself now? Or do you think you've nailed that? Have you cracked that? I don't think you ever can. I think it's a life's, a life's work, but I am investing as much time, energy and money in that part of me as I am in my professional development. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We probably never know, but clearly the, the overall, and actually coming back to one of the things you said, we talked about, um, you were mentioning work-life balance. And actually one of the really interesting things that we chatted about in a previous podcast recently was someone who was like, let's let's potentially maybe stop calling it work-life balance. Just let's call it life balance. Because actually some people might want to just be in a stable yard all day and all night dealing with colics. And that actually might genuinely make them deeply happy. And so, but from the outside, people would be like, they work too much. And they'd be like, but that's what I want to do. And as long as that's the balance in inverted commas for you, then that's fine. And I, I So I really like that kind of life balance sounds just overall much better like you know what I mean um and it's different isn't it for every single every single different person yeah I think it's like work it's work life intention because you can have something that's quite extreme but if that is intentional and has a goal and aim or it feeds some part of you in a positive way then it's fine and I just think it's important that not to come look at that and go I want that or I don't want that um you know it's it's kind of going well as long as it's right for that you know it's right for that individual it's intentional i think we just go through, through life a lot with no intention we just kind of default take the default setting and actually everyone has complete control to go is this default setting what i actually want and need or do i need to like change this a little bit or tweak it or like massively like reset the whole thing yeah and i think it's that to be you know that intention that um that um whole idea that that little tweaks are good but actually, do I need to change the whole thing and feel empowered and and okay to do that? Because that's the one thing that we all have control over is the ability to just do something else, you know? And I think, but again, as veterinary professionals, I think we do struggle with that because that that because we've dedicated so much time to doing that thing. Um, and and so that journey of kind of realization that actually that thing can be different is is not for me certainly that wasn't always an you know wasn't a sort of easy one. You spoke there, which I love, and actually one of the things that I think gives for me just the most joy is collaboration. 
And actually what's lovely about the community, the squiggly community or whatever, the, the the very diverse community that we're part of that I didn't really, you know, I wasn't aware of maybe until more recently, is that it's there's such a joy in collaborating and working with other people. Um, I, I, and I think that's one of the things that is, I don't know, for, for me was one of the biggest surprises. So I think you're... Uh, Tell us a little bit about about that and, and your kind of experience of um, collaboration and that, that kind of world that that's opened up for you. Yeah, I used to be I used to be very, very competitive and would like to do it all on my own. And that for me mm. was like what success was, mm. which is complete and utter bullshit. Yeah. Like beyond it. <laughs> yeah. just, just just... And quite lonely. <laughs> And I think the pandemic was interesting yeah. because it kind of, in some respects, created this equal playing field because no one could do anything. And I think in the digital world, especially, you know, there's so much noise out there. Like I'm done. I'm sure everyone else is pretty much done with being online. Um, so if you want to make waves, you want to make impact, it's far better to go alongside others than it is to try and create that on your own because there's just so much attention grabbing from all these other places that if you can do that um, collectively you're going to have a much better chance of of attracting and impacting the communities and the audiences that you want to do that with so um so I made it my mission over the last two years to really try and ramp up that collaboration um, because as well, like I have a lot of sunken bias, so I think my way is the best way. And that's also bullshit. So it's actually really good to have other people's perspectives on stuff because it, <laughs> it's so important that you get you get challenged, I think, and you get um pushed in different ways, or you get given a lens that you, you know, you couldn't you, you get given a pair of glasses that you that let, let you see in a different way. Um and I think that's also really important. I also have a massive desire to go fast and quick, and I'm very risk-taking. And it's really important to have people that make you go slow and make you think. And sometimes that's really good because then you avoid some errors in the future. So collaborating for me at its core is providing that diversity of thought um, and that diversity of operation that can really, I mean, it annoys me as my collaborators will testify. I can get pretty heated in a meeting if things aren't going quicker, quickly enough. But it's uh, for me, that's the most important thing because then, everything that you produce will be more thought out. And again, coming back to that word intentional, um, I think that's so important. And so things like the Global Veterinary Careers Summit, the Big Student Careers Fair, working with teams from Canada to Australia, you know, student bodies to professional organizations. Um, I think between us, you know, having, you know, over a thousand delegates of peace at those events um, meant it was rich, all the more richer because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also is and it's more fun, right? Like I think it's fun too because you know we have met so many just amazing people and and I remember <clears throat> talking about you saying at the beginning about feeling sort of uncomfortable about me asking you questions. Um, you know I remember when we first started this podcast. Um, I, I so I know Naomi uh, very well. We went to vet school together, and obviously she, well, you know, I'm telling you things you know, but anyway, you know who Naomi is. So, but I reached out to her for a bit of podcast advice. And I was like, oh, maybe this is, you know, I don't, I don't want to step in her toes. And it's maybe a bit like, oh, you know, I don't know. There was kind of a slight kind of like awkwardness about that, but actually there's no reason to be anything other than really pleased that 
you're doing a podcast and you're doing a podcast and you're doing a let's all do a podcast who cares yeah. like why not all do one and then actually let's be guests on each other podcast and let's yeah. promote each you know so I think there's and it's not just about podcasts but there's space for everyone everywhere you know and I think you know it it, it really does just sort of make the whole thing better when everyone is kind of I think in some way working together or collab- I I just think it's there's there's there is definitely so much um so much joy in that yeah and I think it's about actually trying to encourage people to have an abundant mindset rather than like a scarcity mindset so the old me would have been competitive and scarce like no I want I want that space right mm. and the older wiser me is saying if you even get that niggle in you then you better go and collaborate with them because oh. actually that means that you've got something to learn because you might be fearful of them or you might be scared of them or you might think they're better than you or whatever whatever the reason it doesn't really matter um I, I think yeah it's that abundant mindset and it's interesting at the very beginning of VSGD a lot of the I won't name them a lot of the bigger organizational names wouldn't even reply to my emails because whatever you know but then when they see what VSGD live did back in 2018 I don't think we've had a single sponsor or collaborator that's ever said no so it's sometimes you have to prove yourself unfortunately in this world in order to in order to get those collaborations but that yeah. in itself I mean I'm quite spurred on by that if I'm underestimated that's that that's quite I think a lot of veterinary professionals are the, are the same you know if you if you fail or you're not accepted or you're rejected that's just you know that's fuel fuel for the fire isn't it to, to push you on I, I love that I love that so that I love that you know so yeah, if you if there's any niggle of whatever, then actually the first thing you need to do is work with them. Yep. And I yeah, I love I love that. And I think that's it's so you know, so interesting as well. I think I, I've definitely felt a lot of that as well. Starting anything from scratch and, and being smaller than uh, mm-hmm. lots of other things and, 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 and I definitely I definitely have experienced that. But you just yeah, you just need to I think one of the the major things for me is just trying to just stay as true as you can to yourself and kind of that those values that are important and and um yeah and try not to get too um intimidated by all that yeah. stuff but it's also really important as well one thing i've learned the hard way with is careful about expectations because mm. expectations are just resentments waiting to happen so when you're working alongside someone don't assume they think like you don't assume they work like you don't assume they have the same accountability structure as you so it's it's really about co-agreement so if you have an expectation you better say it <laughs> and then say, so, so this is how this is what success looks like to me in this project or this event or this campaign like what 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 does success look like to you and if you know you check there's some marriage and alignment and then you can be like okay so how are we going to how with there's some misalignment here like what are we going to do together what are you going to do what am i going to do to ensure that we reach that because so many of us, especially someone like myself who thinks very quick, like he wants to act very quickly, I will just make assumptions and they are so dangerous because they're often built on my expectations of what I'm going to bring to the party, but what they're going to bring to the party. But you have to co-author, you have to co-agree and that may slow you down, but that is worth every extra meeting to do that because mm. otherwise it just ends in tears on both sides. Speaking from experience. Speaking from experience, <laughs> it just ends in tears. So actually Katie Ford and I work a lot together on events. Yeah. We, we do a lot of extra events for people and we've learned, we've learned, re- you know, we've, we've learned that the hard way with people in a good way though as well. And with ourselves, like we're very, I'm very clear being like, okay, Katie, what do you want to bring to the party? What do you want me to bring to the party? 
what can I do for you? What can you do for me? You know, so it's it's, it's got to be quite it's got to be quite explicit. Yeah, but I think it's funny, you know, it's funny you mentioned Katie and obviously uh, you and Katie helped us um, seamlessly with our with our virtual event. My strategy was very different. I just said to Katie, we'll do what you say. <laughs> my expectation, my expectation is you're the boss. <laughs> so just, so just do it. And I'll do, I'll speak my bit. But otherwise, I think um, in it, I think in that space where we were just, do you know, it's so funny, Ebony, actually, because we, uh, you know, initially we were going to do that event. Oh, we'll just do it on Zoom and it'll be fine. Like it'll be dead good and all that stuff. And I was like, can you imagine if they hadn't been there in the day? What a flipping disaster that all would have been. Um, the only, the only, the only, the only guilt I have on that day was subjecting you to like eight hours of CBD that you probably wouldn't have wanted to attend. I know, I got, I got my small animal CBD in. Yeah, one day. But it's the same when I do stuff for street vet. I'm like, yeah. We don't do street horses, but I've got, yeah, I've, yeah. I, I learned I learn lots of useful information. Uh, no, Good. it's great. It's great. Good. Um, so I, I suppose it's, you know, it's a bit of a kind of cliche question, I suppose, but I think, you know, people will be interested. You talked about kind of maybe being at some sort of, um, you know, uh, point at, with VSGD where, where maybe things are going to, you're going to shake it up a bit by bringing other people in or whatever. Um, so w- w- what is next as far as, uh, what what do you see the next sort of steps with VSGD being? What what's what's happening now? Um, some things I can't say. Some things I can't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Basically, look. Yeah, we need to bring. I need to consult with the community again because look, it's it served people well now, but just because something has worked doesn't. You know, the, the worst thing one can do is say it's always been like this so it's going to remain like this right so we need consultation with the community to find out what they want from it uh, and, and what they want to give to it as well you know and actually open doors for more people to to contribute because one thing that happens is that when communities get big uh, they they feel less safe and so it's about ensuring that actually when the size you know size isn't always a good thing people often say oh how did you get it to be that many people or and I'm like dude, the sweet spot was like 5,000. Like, that's your sweet spot. Keep your communities there. <laughs> like, when you go over that number, it changes everything. And it actually becomes harder to cultivate that safe safety. So, yeah, consultation with the community is, is number one. Um, we're already doing and already have done lots of things, but we probably just need to formalise them a bit more. So we, we've always run events, both online and in person, and that will continue uh, to grow and, and then to 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 occur um we uh launched our careers side so we actually have like a formal career space as well so you can also head to vsd careers to see what's going on there we want to help showcase employers of choice we want to make candidates of choice so it's not just a jobs board it's a place where people can actually come and converse and find out and challenge um and then actually we can help both the candidate and the employer become better spaces because i see too many square pegs in round holes it's not because the candidates are bad or the job is bad it's just you put the wrong candidate in the wrong place and we just need to get better marriage of those of those building blocks um we're also sitting on a hell of a lot of incredible assets with videos and downloads and all sorts. So, you know, we're considering membership space, you know, considering a membership space and uh, things like that. Uh, we've been growing and working alongside the VDS for the group coaching. We want to provide more of that um, kind of action taking space. So whether that's coaching or otherwise, 
with Naomi, we work with Borborygmi and we have the podcast there where we love to, to work alongside you know, different members of the profession to champion different things. Um, and we're in talks with some of the bigger uh, event organizers across the world um, so we can create some community network and career space uh, in, in those because I think everyone's desperate to get back in person and connect. So uh, yeah, look out London Vet Show and beyond. That's exciting, isn't it? And that kind of connection with people maybe not in the virtual space although that's been great I think there's um it's exciting to get back in front of people and I think we're all kind of feeling that there's a few questions that we 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 ask uh, people um there was a new question another lovely podcast that I listened to um I stole this question from her and I've said this before full disclosure so one of the things that she likes to ask her guests which I love is uh, what do you want to be when you grow up I just want to be at peace with myself. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Just, oh, it's not about what I want to, it's not, yeah, to be, I want to be at peace. To do whatever brings the peace. <laughs> to have whatever creates that. Because I yeah. spent, like many other people, spent a long yeah. time in conflict with myself, tearing myself apart. So, yeah. Oh, want to be good at- answer. Good answer. Yeah. Um, and I love the kind of, I love the the real kind of uh, diversity of answers actually can that that question brings from, from just like a fireman to at peace. You know, I love, I love that. Um, okay. So one of the things um, that I, and again, I hate to second guess, I, I think I do know the answer maybe to this already, but if you were to do <clears throat> this all again and, and you were filling out that UCAS application for vet school, would you still put in that application? Would you still would you still apply to vet school? It's funny. I was just been on just been in um, working remotely with a group of vets of mine in Italy, and none of them are vets. None of them are clinical vets anymore. And we we had exactly this conversation around a dinner table, and we we circled back so many times on whether we would or we wouldn't. Um, I think I would because it's part of the tapestry of you know where I'm at now. And yeah, I think it, I, I would, I would do it. I would do it all again. And I probably wouldn't do it any differently. I don't think, I don't think. It's part, it's part of the squiggle, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think. The only thing differently is, yeah. I got into art school and med school before I got into vet school. So there's, there's, there's definitely a creative side of me that I feel only is now being like discovered again. And that's something that I want to give more time to. But would I, would I want to go and be an artist or a dancer or a, I don't know, you know? I think, well, I don't know. I, I think I, I honestly do. I did not know that about you, about art school, didn't you know? <clears throat> but I would say that, that, you know, through the platforms that we see you on, I do think there's a very, there's a, I think you use creativity. Genuine, I'm really, I'm being honest about that. I think you, there's something very creative about you, I think, as a person. I think just as far as my perception of you, as in, maybe that's right or wrong I don't know but I think your artisticness comes out in a good way thank you <laughs> you know sometimes being the sound I think again I'm I'm self-stigmatizing myself here and, and placing myself into my own box but yeah it's just having given myself permission to just be more creative yeah what and I had a great job I was I was working in music television and tv production for two years before I became a vet so I could have stayed there and I think you know if I look at my colleagues and peers who I'm still very good friends with in that space that life was great too you know so 
the thing is, is there's a thousand, op- they, they would all be great options. They'd just all be different. They'd all be wonderful mm-hmm. options. Like I'd, mm-hmm. I'd be blessed to be gone down an art route, a medical, or to be happy as a doctor, you know, happy as a vet, happy as a TV producer. I think all of them would have been great. But would I well, not, no. yeah, would I not do that form? And I think I still would do that form because at the very core is that desire to, to be a voice of the voiceless and to, and that fascination with animals. So I don't think it could have been any other any other way a full circle moment i don't want to embarrass you at all but you know you you when i've asked the question to people on the podcast before about who is uh an inspiration to them and, and often people will kind of pick people from the veterinary sphere i mean you have been mentioned uh more than three or four times so um yeah no I, I, genuine genuinely and i think for probably you know i love that giving a voice to the voiceless or just giving people that sort of ticket here you go have this and you can do exactly what you like um so so i think yeah reading between the lines that's often i think the reason for that so my question to you is who inspires you how long have we got well i don't, I don't think there's a, i don't there's a single person i think the opposite is the better way to say who doesn't inspire you it'd be much short gosh like honestly there is there isn't a single individual who hasn't crossed my path in veterinary really who hasn't inspired me like just hasn't you know right from like students like taking Callum McIntyre and Izzy Arthur you know the last two presidents of the ABS like they inspire me beyond belief they're not you know that they're not even in the profession you know yet I mean they're you know so it's everyone everyone who I've had the, the the fortune of crossing paths with because yeah, everyone's a lesson and everyone again like provides that that diversity of thought um so I just feel like it's really difficult to single people out and like from my po- you know from my pony days of being you know being a horse vet it's people like Derek Nottingbout and the, the great Barry Edwards who I was so lucky to work under and alongside and Chris Proudman, Debbie Archer, Rosie Owen, who is a, a long-standing friend as well as teacher. Um, so, so many horsey crew that inspire me all the time. And then I've got my lovely like working group at the SGD from Caroline Crow, Adrian Nelson Pratt, Liz Barton, Kat Curtis, Anthony Ridge, Greer Wild. Um, they're just amazing, you know, these people are amazing. They've helped me every step of the way um, in that Katie Ford, Every day is a is a beautiful day working alongside her. Um, the list is just it's just it's just endless. It's literally endless. Um, every single I, I feel I just feel awful even naming a name because yeah. it's just well let, well well then, yeah. but you said it at the beginning. So there, let let's talk about the people that don't. Let's not talk about the people <laughs> that don't inspire me like bad people. <laughs> so let's not talk about them. But I think that I think I would I would really echo that as far as particularly young people you know I I just can't I'm so blown away by the younger people within the profession that are just full of just joy and enthusiasm and 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 I'm just like oh god you're so good you're so So good good. you know Nicole Reagan Nicole Reagan and Holly Sutton were two students in Liverpool and Surrey respectively that worked worked at VSGD because believe it or not there's like we I actually pay an employ freelance 10 people or so behind the scenes to do you know the, the machine 
runs with these people behind it and 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 some of these younger lot are the ones with all the good new ideas and all the best ways of working and so yeah Nicole and Holly are just I mean those women are going to be two forces to be absolutely reckoned with in the future and I cannot wait to watch their like chapters unfold because they're going to be incredible yeah no you're I think you're absolutely right really uh, really inspiring um and then just to finish off um if you were to give a piece of advice to the folks who are listening, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, piece of advice. Oh, so much, so so much. Um, the piece of advice that's helped me the most is something my mum said when I left home at 17. And it's, she's just said like, what is for you will not pass you you don't have to grasp onto it all like things that are meant to settle and be with you will and that's from personal and professional that's from the people that walk in your life and the people that walk out of your life and the jobs that come and the jobs that go and I just think that for me is really a really settling thing um yeah what's for you will not pass you I think that's that's one of my my mantras to live by for sure yeah and it's very true and so it's very true actually it's but, but you need to it's these kind of things you do need to remind yourself of actually in the moments of disappointment and and that sort of thing but no it's very very true she also said just because you can doesn't mean you should <laughs> <laughs> she is a why is that hilarious it's also something that often i think about and go oh yeah okay yeah listen <laughs> But that, do you know that I love that actually, but in, in, in it, that is so true as well. You know, I, I would have loved to have been a pop star, but I can't really sing that good. So <laughs> <laughs> you know? do you know what I mean? Like, it's so true. Oh, well, well, listen, on that note, um, well, it, honestly, th- <laughs> thank you. So I, under- <laughs> we, we, I realized how very busy you are and uh, we definitely are very grateful for you taking time to chat. And I think a lot of, um, what you've said today will, you know, definitely, uh, you know, be things that will help people. And uh, again, it's the point of our conversations are really just to be conversations. And, and but I think it's amazing how much people can take away from just that. So um, we're very, very grateful for you taking the time to talk to us. Um, and hopefully um, we will be seeing you and maybe even working with you again very soon. It's just, a, it's a joy. Um, it's a joy really. So thank you. Oh, so thank you for holding much. this space. And, and actually I, I haven't felt this comfortable doing an interview actually. So, and I, I, and I, and I decline a lot oh. of them because I, I do genuinely find it quite difficult to do these. So um, uh, I really appreciate that. I really, you've held the space well, wonderfully. You did very well. Um, and I, I, <laughs> And I'm actually, I'm not maybe at my best today. First of all, I mean, I look like this. Second of all, my children are under my desk, which is not ideal, Karen. I know, I'm sorry. No, it wouldn't be a podcast or a Zoom meeting or a conference without little pandemic patters of little feet along um, or feeling or is it, walking it's just it's part I, I kind of a bit unnerved when it when it when it when they don't appear I've decided yeah. now. 
but it's, uh, it, it was just, but it, you know, it was one of those days where I know we've had this in the diary for a while and then my child came, fell through and Andy had to go back. So we're just, I know I can, I, I could, I was like reading Karen's mind going, she's going to be like, what are you doing with this sound? <laughs> but Karen, Karen does wonders in the editing space. So she'll, she'll take them out. I'm sure somehow. I'll do my best. She'll do her best. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I think, I think like you say, it just adds to the realness of what we're doing. So it's exactly. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Cause um, yeah. One thing that we, you know, we aren't, we are not vets or vet nurses or vet students. We work as them. Yeah. We are so, so many other things. Yeah. And when we, when we, when we believe that, uh, the little, the little problems in work and the little problems in our career become less, uh, sure, less for us. Definitely, no, definitely, definitely. Um, and I'm also, I, I I'm also pleased because you must be exhausted after all these exciting things you've been doing traveling wise. What? I literally have loved your Instagram <laughs> over the last few weeks because I'm like, why is my life not like hers? <laughs> So a massive thank you to Ebony for her amazing chat today. Um, we're going to go into our clinical segment now and we're continuing our anemia theme. Um, we left off last week talking about uh, regenerative anemia and some of the non-immune mediated causes uh, of regenerative anemia, which um, were some, again, non-immune causes of hemolysis. Uh, and also uh, blood loss. Um, but this week we're going to be focusing mainly uh, on IMHA because we felt like it needed um, some time uh, on its own. Just a massive thank you again to the wonderful people, uh, people, folks, friends at IDEX uh, for their support of these uh, podcasts. We really, truly appreciate that very much. So IMHA or immune mediated hemolytic anemia is 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 really is a very important condition because um it's something that can significantly affect our patients and um and particularly our canine um patients although cats are are definitely affected too. Um, it's been around for a while and the first reports of immune mediated hemolytic anemia in in uh, our patients were in the uh, 1970s. One of the fundamental things with any immune mediated disease is is this a primary process where there isn't an underlying cause and there is just an inappropriate immune response? Or is this a secondary process? So there isn't an inappropriate immune, immune response still, but it's secondary to some underlying cause. And, and the common things that will be cited as far as underlying causes would be things like neoplasia and, and infection. The most common form of, of IMHA is uh, idiopathic, so we don't determine there to be an underlying cause. Um, and, and that is the most common um, hemolytic disorder in our companion animals. Um, ultimately, what is happening is that the red blood cells are being destroyed um, because of antibody flagging. So this is an immune uh, response um, uh, in the reticular endothelial system. So the reticular endothelial uh, system um, is really the, the spleen and the liver um, and they are uh, inappropriately then removing uh, red blood cells ultimately from the circulation. Um, some of this immune uh, reaction can also be complement uh, mediated, but we'll not get in too much of the immunological details, certainly not on the podcast. It's difficult to uh, describe too much without uh, visuals and diagrams. 
One of the most important things to remember is that actually the mortality rate in canine idiopathic IMHA has been reported to be really high between 21 and 83 uh, percent. But I think that will vary depending on lots of different factors. Um, the most critical period as far as mortality and fatality is going to be in the first two weeks after diagnosis. That's that really critical period when they're they're often hospitalised. Um, and almost half of the deaths um, with IMHA are related to thromboembolism. So thromboembolic disease um, is really a key um, issue here as far as uh, fatalities in those early stages particularly. Ultimately, this is an inappropriate uh, hemolysis of the of the red blood cells. Um, that can you you'll hear that described as as being either extravascular or intravascular hemolysis or both. Um, that is just really a little bit to do with the the different ways in which the red blood cells are um, destroyed. Uh, extravascular hemolysis occurs primarily within the spleen, um, and intravascular hemolysis is triggering uh, red blood cell destruction within the circulation. The the key sort of clinical. Um, points there as far as as what you might see in reality is that um, uh, haemoglobinemia and haemoglobinuria are usually seen when there's intravascular hemolysis. Um, how much that changes what you do? Probably not. But as far as you will not, you, you know, you'll see then plenty of IMHA cases that have got uh, extravascular hemolysis that might not have haemoglobinuria or haemoglobinemia and they can still be IMHA. These patients uh, are normally presenting um, sort of not really old and not really young. So the mean age of presentation is about six. It's quite uncommon in, in patients under one, but it can happen. Um, uh, but, you know, ultimately can affect patients of any age. There are certainly some key breeds that we see affected with the, the Spaniel, the Cocker and the Springer being kind of poster children for this condition. But there are other um, uh, breeds that are affected more, uh, including Bichon um, and uh, uh, Poodles, uh, as well as flat-coated retrievers. The clinical signs are, are really those of, of anemia. Um, they can be very non-specific. So patients are lethargic. They may um, be, you know, particularly ill on presentation if they've had um, severe hemolytic events that have happened very quickly. They can be collapsed, tachycardic, um, uh, uh, tachypnic. Um, they um, will obviously have pale mucous membranes. You can see also discoloration of the membrane, so they, they often will um, have uh, very yellow or icteric mucous membranes um, due to that buildup of bilirubin um, because of the hemolysis. They may have red urine if they have um, haemoglobinuria. Um, they sometimes can be pyrexic and some will have petechiation. Um, you can get, uh, alongside IMHA, you can get concurrent um immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, um, and so that's something just to, to be keeping an eye out for. So these cases typically are going to be falling into the regenerative anemia category, um, and so that's something that we're going to want to determine uh, as soon as possible. Um, as we've said, um, that's kind of one of the key things to, to, to determine early, um, early on. Um, what's really important to remember is 30% of dogs that have IMHA will have a non-regenerative anemia at presentation. And that can be for two reasons. It can be that actually they are in a pre-regenerative um, stage. So they've not, um, maybe they've had a very rapid hemolytic event and, and actually they've just not had a chance to regenerate. Uh, or 
they we can see a non-regenerative form of immune-mediated hemolytic anemia. So you can have hemolytic anemia that is non-regenerative as well. Um, and that tends to be an issue that's kind of further back within the bone marrow. As much as most of them will be regenerative, some are not, uh, and they can still be IMHA. Some of the hallmarks that we're looking for, um, apart from, you know, the regenerative anemia is the spherocytes. So these are these smaller um, uh, red blood cells that lack central pallor that have had um, a bit of a, a fight with the immune system with macrophages. They are difficult to see in cats because cats' red blood cells are generally smaller. Um, and so uh, spherocytes are much easier to see in dogs. So they're smaller and they lack the central pallor of normal red blood cells. As we've said in previous podcasts, um, spherocytes can form um, because of non-immune effects on the red blood cells. So uh, we talked about oxidative damage with things like zinc and paracetamol. And um, so although typically they are uh, seen most commonly with IMHA, they can be seen uh, for other uh, for other reasons. Some of the other tests, and again, this is about building a bit of a picture, you know, so there's not one thing that is going to help you diagnose IMHA. It really is about putting a, a picture together. So certainly regenerative anemia, looking down the microscope, seeing spherocytes, then doing things like saline agglutination. So you are looking for um, mixing that one drop of blood with a, a drop of saline uh, and looking for that kind of clumping uh, of red blood cells um, is another way that we can demonstrate that there is immune uh, uh, reaction going on. That clumping of red blood cells is caused by basically the antibodies making the red blood cells kind of stick together. Um, so that's another uh, easy way that we can look uh, for um, a sign that this is IMHA. The other thing, uh, you know, the, the, the in saline agglutination is something we can do in-house and it's a, a nice, easy thing to do. If you get a positive in saline agglutination, then that's pretty good. Um, and and actually, there's there, there would be no need to do any other tests such as the Coombs test, which is another way of looking for that kind of immune reaction as far as kind of clumping of red blood cells. The Coombs test is something that we don't do in-house. Um, that would have to be sent off. And I think if you didn't get a positive in saline agglutination and you were still uh, suspicious of IMHA, then I would be sending off blood for a Coombs analysis. That's definitely a useful um, thing um, to do. One of the other key things that we're going to see when there is IMHA and lots of hemolysis of red blood cells is hyperbilirubinemia. So your bilirubin levels in the blood will uh, go up. There are other reasons for bilirubin to be increased, but certainly um, in an, a, an anemic animal with very high bilirubin, you would be su suspicious of hemolysis. In a patient that had very high bilirubin and wasn't anemic, then you might be thinking about other causes such as um, uh, really liver disease. Uh, but ultimately in an anemic animal that is hyperbilirubinemic, uh, you are thinking about uh, whether that patient might have uh, hemolysis. We're looking really at the bilirubin in the blood. That's the most accurate thing to, to do. Uh, dogs with IMHA, uh, well, dogs and cats with IMHA may then 
have a spillover of bilirubin into their into their urine uh, and their urine may be really sort of uh, i've certainly seen uh, imha dogs urine that's that really almost stains the floor because it's so pigmented with bilirubin remember that bilirubin in the urine of dogs can be normal but bilirubin in the urine of cats is always abnormal so dogs can conjugate bilirubin in their urine but cats cannot do that so bilirubin in the urine of cats is always abnormal and then we spoke about hemoglobinemia and hemoglobinuria. So having hemoglobin pigment in the urine and the blood um, because the red blood cells have burst. Um, and remember that is um, in the urine, um, if the urine is very red, the way to distinguish between hemoglobin and actually just red blood cells is to obviously spin the urine and uh, the blood down. And if the serum or the urine remains pigmented after it's spun down, then that's a sign of hemoglobinemia or hemoglobinuria. And then the other thing that we can see under the microscope is ghost cells. So these are these kind of uh, remnants of um, uh, red blood cells that have a ghostly appearance. So they just look like shells of red blood cells. And that's another really useful um, pointer that these red blood cells are being destroyed in some way. So once we've potentially made our diagnosis, we we may want to have a think about kind of whether there are potentially underlying causes that um uh, that could be contributing towards IMHA, and this is always very contentious. There, so we've, you know, there are many sort of uh, possibilities of infectious, inflammatory, and neoplastic causes that could be triggers of IMHA in dogs and cats, and the question is, what do we you know, do any do we have any evidence to say that any of these things are actually worth being concerned about? Um, fundamentally, we still have to consider that any uh, infectious agent could trigger immune-mediated dysregulation. Um, uh, so that I suppose any infectious agent is a possibility. Organisms that we think maybe um, have a stronger, uh, more evidence-based correlation with IMHA um, are uh, Babesia, so Babesia gibsoni, um, has a sort of a relatively good um, evidence-based correlation with IMHA. Um, the exact mechanism um, of destruction um, um, is is not you know totally uh well understood and, and i think we have to be careful in these cases particularly uh, about rushing to to immunosuppress them i think this is always the difficult thing when you suspect there's an infectious agent associated with the, the imha the question always comes down to um do we need to just treat the infectious agent or do we need to treat the infection agent and immunosuppress them and many of them will still need to be this is not just for Babesia, but many, many um, IMHA associated with infection will still need to be in some way immunosuppressed. It's still an immune reaction, but we have to be cautious about kind of when we're doing that. So um, that so in many of the Babesia cases uh, that we suspect are associated with IMHA, actually treating the Babesia is the biggest priority. Other infectious agents um, uh, have have relatively little um, association with with IMHA in dogs, but actually, um, depending on which part of the world you're in, I would be considering um, infectious disease screening in in these patients. And certainly, in the UK, dogs um, with a history of tick exposure, we would be considering running a, a SNAP 4DX test in these cases, um, which is a, a quick and easy way of kind of screening for infectious disease, uh, looking for uh, babies, uh, looking for 
excuse me, not Babesia, Ehrlichia, uh, Borrelia, Anaplasma. Um, and obviously it, it, it looks for heartworm as well. But that may be an, an easy way. But again, that really depends on what, what part of the world you're in. I definitely, in feline cases of IMHA, I definitely would be um, screening for Mycoplasma haemophilus uh, with PCR. And I would always be screening FALV, FIV um, in these cases as well. So that's always worth doing in cats. There's relatively poor evidence linking, strongly linking neoplasia, inflammatory disease uh, with with IMHA. But I think um, we almost certainly should still be screening uh, for uh, neoplastic and inflammatory disease uh, in our IMHA patients. Um, So considering uh, chest radiography, abdominal ultrasound or uh, CT chest and abdomen potentially um, as a kind of screening tool in in these patients. Um, And also making sure we've taken a thorough uh, drug history um, and uh, making sure that we have excluded any obvious uh, drug associated uh, reactions. The other big thing is is vaccination and uh, really the link with vaccination and IMHA is very poor and I think what we have to consider is the gazillions of vaccines that we carry out every year and actually um you know we're we're really not seeing a strong association association with IMHA um but always worth um asking uh, vaccination history and things in your you know in your process of investigating these cases as far as our diagnostic approach um a thorough history to include all of the the travel and infectious disease, flea and worm treatment, all of that kind of stuff. We want to be doing full um, hematology, including blood smear examination, considering biochemistry as well to making sure that we're not uh, dealing with any concurrent disease. Um, And then considering imaging choices to look for concurrent disease. So as I said, uh, chest radiography, abdominal ultrasound or CT uh, would be considered. Uh, And then making that decision about potentially infectious disease screening, uh, depending on where you are in the world. And I would very much, you know, base that on, on geography. And then just to think a little bit about treatment, uh, one of the main things that we're thinking about initially is the need for blood products. And actually the thing that these dogs and cats are are are, are destroying and losing and needing are uh, blood cells. So patch red blood cells are going to be the sort of treatment of choice as far as blood products. If patch red blood cells are not available, then whole blood is obviously a reasonable alternative. But you know, always trying to replace what the the patient actually needs, then the packed red blood cells are probably the most reasonable choice. There is a bit of an argument for using the freshest packed red blood cells that you can. So if you're in a, a, a privileged position of having red blood cells in the fridge in your clinic more than one uh, bag of red blood cells, although we always want to be using the one that's going to go out of date first, actually there's a an argument for using the um newest red blood cells um that you have available um because actually there has been some association with older patch red blood cell units and this is particularly in cases of IMHA uh, that have been associated with a greater risk of um potentially complications so this is you know this is very much in in IMHA cases so that's just something to to uh, consider and then one of the main things we're going to be doing is administering immunosuppression and that's going to usually come in the form of a steroid to begin with um, giving uh, usually injectable dexamethasone uh, to start with in hospitalized patients and then transitioning on to prednisolone. 
The decision about whether to, to add in a second agent is, is always contentious. Potentially in our the more severe cases that I deal with, I will do pretty quickly. Um, and also remembering that a second agent can help to reduce the amount of steroid that's used in the medium to long term. Um, but certainly in those cases that are very severe to begin with um, and not showing any sort of signs of stability within those first few days, I would be thinking about a second agent pretty quickly. And those second agent options are things like azathioprine, cyclosporin, uh, mycophenolate, mofetil. The evidence of exactly which one to choose is, um, is, is more limited. In those really challenging cases where you're not getting under control of the, of the problem, you are having to transfuse multiple times, you've added in a second agent. Some other drugs that you can consider are uh, things like human intravenous immunoglobulin, quite an expensive option. Um, and, and I would use that more of a kind of salvage, salvage procedure. Um, but certainly that's another drug that is worth kind of considering. And then hopefully once we stabilize, um, and, and, and one of the important things to remember is that you've got to be prepared to potentially transfuse uh, multiple times. That's not uh, ridiculous. Um, we're hoping to transition these patients onto oral medication. And, and then we start that long process of kind of having them on medication actually for sometimes quite protracted period of time. Um, but once we're reaching some degree of stability, we can start to think about then hopefully tapering that medication. But but that whole process of kind of tapering is going to, to take, you know, months and months. Um, so we're, we're in it for the long haul uh, then. One of the other really important things to consider in particularly in that in that, you know, initial uh, phase of treatment is thromboprophylaxis and the fact that they're at higher risk of thromboembolic disease. And I would provide, be providing thromboprophylaxis uh, for all dogs with IMHA, uh, apart from those with very low platelet counts, so usually below 30 times 10 to the 9, because we know that these patients are at risk, increased risk of thromb uh, thrombosis. The pathophysiology of thrombosis in IMHA is really uh, complex, and there's a lot of sort of debate about that as far as where these clots are potentially forming, you know, they're forming in the venous system uh, under kind of lower pressures. And, and so they're a, a lot more fibrin dense than maybe platelet forming. I think regardless of that, the, the, the reasons for clot formation, as I said, is complex. So I think we are absolutely justified um, still in using um, drugs that affect platelets. Um, but I think we have to think about the fact that maybe we can give them more than that. In an ideal world, uh, we would potentially be using things like unfractionated heparin um, in these cases. But actually, that poses some real challenges. The monitoring of, of, of using fractionated heparin is very challenging um, and, and therefore um, not as straightforward. You, you know, really the ability to, to, to be measuring coagulation in very specific ways is, is necessary for that. So um, from a practical point of view, um, the other drug, apart from some of our antiplatelet drugs, the other drug that can be really useful in these cases is the, the factor 10A inhibitor, rivaroxaban, which can be given orally and often I will give that alongside antiplatelet drugs such as clopidogrel um, or aspirin. All of this will depend on availability. So often, it, depending on what you have on the shelf, I definitely would be using 
either clopidogrel or aspirin in these cases um, and and having rivaroxaban um, certainly is something that we are using more commonly in combination uh, with that. So again a little whistle stop tour as always. I hope that was helpful. Um, we are continuing our uh, anemia chat next time uh, with uh, some of the causes of non-regenerative anemia so I hope you will join us for that. So just to say a massive thank you again to the wonderful Ebony for chatting to us today. Um, just so many amazing points to, to take away from her, her conversation. It really was such a joy to chat with her. Massive thank you again to IDEX for their support um, of our anemia course and our, our, our uh, anemia clinical chats on the podcast as well. To learn more about VTX and what we do, please head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. Uh, we are loving a bit of interaction on social media, so do head over to our social media platforms and say hello there too. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone again for listening to the podcast and being so kind and supportive. We appreciate um, every single one of you. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Mm-hmm.